Pastor Paul. I'm <clears throat> um, reminded as he's talking about RTS and WTS that uh, uh, the kingdom of God is upside down, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, and the younger and the older serves the younger. So just want to put that out there. Scripture reading for today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. This is God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Morning. Okay. Um, it's my joy to be with you all. If I haven't had the honor of meeting you, would love to do that after the service. Um, but for many of you that I've gotten to know over the years, uh, thanks for having me back. Um, it is a, it's an honor when the pastor is willing to share their pulpit with you. It, it says a lot about um, their confidence and faith in the Lord, <laughs> that they'd be so trusting of other um, voices uh, to be added to the pulpit. So thank you, Pastor Paul and the rest of the staff for allowing me to come and to share a little bit uh, about Radstock and also um, from the word this morning. Uh, as Pastor Paul said, I'm part of uh, this thing called Radstock Ministries. It's in uh, missions organization, and we're different in that we're not an agency that processes people from A to Z and sends them off, but we are churches connected for the purpose of seeing the kingdom advance by way of church planting in difficult places. So not in impossible places, but in difficult places. Most recently, um, I uh, was in the Balkans uh, area, my first time in that region, and uh, got a chance to visit many of the churches uh, and meet with pastors from Albania, uh, Kosovo, as they say, or as we know it, Kosovar, and uh, North Macedonia, which is right above Greece. Uh, it was my first time being there, as I said, and it was interesting to hear the stories of how God has been working in a very dark place. As many of you know, communism fell in 91 in that area, and uh, it was like, it was pretty bad. And uh, the churches from around the world started pouring into that place a crew, as many of you know, uh, started um, doing their missionary work by way of Jesus uh, film ministry. And they were able to translate and share the gospel with many folks there and saw what was the first wave of Christians and Christian leaders come uh, from that area. Fast forward six years later, in 1997, a war breaks out between the Serbs and Albanians. And uh, that, once again, destroys that area. When I was there in October, uh, we heard news of about a dozen men uh, fully armed that crossed the border of Serbia and uh, Kosovo intended on doing harm. And uh, so the animosity between the two people groups is real, and that has dampened the church's effort to advance the kingdom. And uh, for those of you Korean old enough 
uh, to remember perhaps stories that your mom or your grandparents told you. There's a, there used to be, maybe not the case anymore, but a lot of hostility between my grandmother, who's 94, still alive, and the Japanese, uh, you know, during their occupation time. And that's sort of what's going on between the Serbs and the Albanians. And uh, as they think through ways of being a gospel witness to people that they just don't like, it's been a huge challenge and a prayer point for them. But even in the midst of that, I got a chance to see God really put that on the hearts of the Albanians. I'll be very brief here uh, in sort of recapping the roundtable conference that I was a part of. It was our, it's our annual gathering once a year, and we had about 75 missionaries from all over the world come. And because of your prayer and support in the past years, we were able to have Mongolian pastors, church planters, and Cambodian pastors and church planters come join us for this conference and update us on the work that God is doing in their respective countries. And you know, sometimes we here in America, we live with our heads in the sand, don't we? And uh, the challenges seem insurmountable. How do we even reach our neighbors, let alone how can we be a gospel witness in this place that is so liberal and broken and divided and so on and so forth. And I realized as I was listening to their stories and testimonies of God working through them and in their places that God is always at work even here. It's through the often overseen, overlooked things, the small, ordinary obedience of the church that God is doing his work. And it was great to hear the work that God is doing in these different places, but in particular, Albania. I didn't realize this, but Albanians are Koreans. Did you know this? Like, we share so much in common culturally with them. I was shocked when I found out that in Albania, they have this thing called shijipsari. You know what that is? For those of you non-Koreans, shijipsari is when the mother-in-law gives a daughter-in-law a hard time, okay? Uh, it's like a hazing that goes on for like 40 years, though, right? It's like, welcome to the family. Now, let me treat you the way you should be treated. And uh, as they were telling me about the unique distinctives of the Albanian culture, I'm like, dude, you're Koreans. <laughs> like, we must have been separated at birth. Uh, and uh, not only that, um, because of their desire to be a part of the EU, everyone under the age of 40 uh, speaks English. Like, they're fluent in English. I say all of these things because I walked away from my time there thinking, man, this is prime for good work, harvest work to be done in this area. Many people in that region are ethnically Albanians, even though the countries are drawn up differently. I don't know who did that, but I'm sure that happened a while ago. But God is at work in Albania, in that country specifically, and is raising up not only Christians, but church planters and missionaries who will go to other neighboring countries to serve the ethnic Albanians with the gospel. And God is working through the efforts of the church, not only through their evangelism and outreach, but through dreams and visions. God is bringing people who are not yet part of his flock to come to know him, love him, and then be sent out as missionaries to different parts of the world. And so if you are wondering, is God working in my life, through me, through our church, the testimony of the brothers from Albania and beyond remind us that God has not forgotten about you. He continues to do this work. And I trust that he will do that even this morning as we look at his word together.
I've been thinking a lot about this topic of holiness. What does it mean to be holy? We often think in terms of personal piety, don't we? That I need to pray more, read more, serve more. I need to become like Christ. And those things are all there. It's part of what it means to be holy. But the Old Testament understanding of this word holiness is much broader than just personal piety. And as we see through the witness of the Israelites in the Old Testament or the lack thereof, holiness is not just personal piety, but it has everything to do with our witness to the world. The Ten Commandments function in several ways. One, it was to guide the people in their relationship with one another and their relationship with God, but through their obedience, they were to be a light to the Gentile nations. Likewise, when we take seriously the command to be holy as he is holy, it's not just us becoming Christ-like, but it's our witness to the world. It's our light in dark places so that the world, when they look for what is good, true, and beautiful, can point to the body of Christ, the light of the world, and say, behold, there is Christ. And so as we dive into this topic of holiness, I pray that we would gain a vision for what holiness looks like personally, communally, and missionally, so that together as a church of Christ, that we would be an example of Christ, a foretaste of what is to come, so that the world will know Christ through us. Let's pray together and we'll dive right in, shall we? God, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can be together. Thank you for this body, for their love for you, for their commitment to one another, and even their support for missions and beyond. We pray, oh God, that you would use all of these things to form Christ-likeness in them. And even now, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to apply the full benefits of, your, of the salvation that is ours in Christ to our hearts. Remind us once again of the full scope of the grace and the gospel that is ours and help us to live boldly, declaring the wonders of Christ in word and deed, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, the New Yorker ran an article on President Chester Arthur entitled, When a New York Baron Becomes President. Subtitle, in the case of Chester Arthur, the story is one of surprising redemption. Chester Arthur, unlike his Baptist preacher father, was a crooked New York politician skimming off the top as a collector of the custom house, which then was the most lucrative job in the federal government. According to historians, Arthur enjoyed the finer things of life. It was said that he owned hundreds and hundreds of pairs of pants. I mean, just imagine the size of your like dresser or your closet to house all of these things in. Not only that, he used to party, rub shoulders with all the big people in the New York City and beyond at the time. And one of those guests was quoted saying, French servants wearing coats and pants with immaculate white vests and gloves were as active as a set of monkeys in fetching food and drink. It is a window into the world he lived. He cared not for the ways of his father, but he was going to live it up. He didn't care about politics and serving the people through his position and clout, 
but he simply wanted to serve himself. Whatever was to his benefit, that's where he leaned. He saw his relationships and his title and his connections transactionally. Through a series of fortunate and some unfortunate events, this guy, this guy that we just talked about here, became the vice president of the United States of America. And thereafter, he became the 21st president of the United States of America. At a time when social media did not exist, people had heard about Arthur and all his parties and whatnot, and so they spoke out loud, wondering if this corrupt, party-loving politician could somehow pivot, shed his crookedness, and begin to act presidential and serve the common good. In this critical moment of his life, an unsung hero, an invalid from New York named Julius Sand, began to reach out to him by letters, encouraging him, the new president, to move toward a sort of redemption that his father used to preach about. In one of such letters, she wrote, do what is more difficult and more brave, reform. It is not the proof of highest goodness never to have done wrong, but it is a proof of it sometimes in one's career to pause, to ponder, to recognize the evil, and to turn resolutely against it and devote the remainder of one's life to that only which is pure and exalted. She reached out to him many, many, many times with such letters, encouraging, calling this president to now live into his new status, his new identity, and to utilize his influence and clout for good. Apparently, these letters had a profound effect on Arthur. According to the historians, after his term as the president, Arthur burned many of the papers as an act of both shame and pride, except the letters from Miss Sand. These letters buoyed him through the crucible years in the White House. Can you imagine the pressures of running the country, let alone he was literally dying from Bright's disease that left him prone to nausea, depression, and fatigue. Despite these and many disparate challenges that he faced in the Oval Office, he indeed committed himself to national reform. He supported, for example, the civil rights movement and even vetoed the first version of the Chinese Exclusion Act and settled for what has become the Chinese Exclusion Act of late 1800s. In many ways, all of you, if you are a Christ follower, can identify with Arthur. You too have a new identity, new status, given a call not only to serve yourself, your own interests, but to serve and love Christ and to serve the interests of his kingdom. And Peter knows that we need a lot of encouragement to live into this new identity. Here in the passage that was read to us earlier, he says simply, be holy, for I am holy. He's writing to a bunch of Christians that are scattered all over the known world at the time. People that have given up and sacrificed much in the name of Christ and for their newfound faith. 
And as they're struggling to embrace who they are and to live out the command to be holy, he writes this letter to encourage them. He's going to get to other parts about what it means to be a faithful husband or wife, to be diligent in our civic and serve, uh, social duties and so on. But before he goes there, he encourages God's people with a grace that is now secure and theirs in Christ. In other words, he says, if you want to be holy, you have to understand and have a firm grasp on this thing called grace. But what is holiness? As I said, oftentimes we equate holiness with morality. Somehow that we live a good life. But holiness is much broader than that. When you go to the Old Testament, you have certain groups of people that were called holy, like the priests. People who were set apart for a unique service in the temple. But people weren't the only ones who were called holy. Things were called holy, like the temple and its furnishings. Why were these things, along with certain groups of people, called holy? Because they were set apart for the Lord's service. In other words, for all of you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are holy. Holiness is not something you strive to achieve or obtain. No, it is who you are because you have been called out of this world and into a relationship with him. It's your new identity, new status. That's what the theologians call the positional holiness. It's who you are. But it doesn't end there. Because you are positionally holy, you are now then called to be practical holy in all you do. You see, if you skip over the positional part and work really hard at the practical part, you only become a moralistic person. You have earned your salvation or try to by your good works. Jesus did not come into this world, die on the cross so that you can be a better person. No. He came to save you. That's why he made you holy. You have been brought from darkness to light, death to life. And in that new status, he calls you to be who you are. That means you no longer live for yourself, your standards, your dreams, your goals. All of those things now take a backseat to his will, his way, his kingdom. And all of our life, we learn and struggle to submit to that. Because in doing so, we find the ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty. But again, how do we live this out? How do we live out the call to be holy? How can we be practically holy in everything we do all the time when these commands honestly rub against the very flesh? I know I'm like that. Sin and temptation are just around the corner. And they're always pushing against these commands. So Peter writes this letter to encourage us. And here in the passage that we read, he gives us two graces. Two graces. It's one grace, but manifold of God's grace that we need to hold on to in order for us to actually live into our status as God's holy people. What are these two things? First, the hope of future grace. The hope of future grace. 
verse 13, Peter says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every Wednesday before I preach a sermon, during the meal, I do like a quick homily to my children. I have 16, 14, 12, 10-year-old. And if they can't get my sermon, I know my people can't. And so I practice on them. Uh, pray for your pastors and their families because, you know, they, they have to deal with all the antics <laughs> that the pastors have to go through. And so I, I was sort of unpacking the sermon that I was going to preach to them. And I asked them, what do you think Peter is talking about here by grace in verse 13? They're all like, Jesus. Because that's the Sunday school answer, right? You know, anything and everything is Jesus, right? It's like, okay, you're, you're right. Okay, it is Jesus. And at this point in the meal, I said, aha, got you, because this is not Jesus, okay? Peter here makes a distinction between the grace that would be brought to them. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul would say our inheritance. It's connected, but it's different. In that, yes, it has everything to do with Jesus, but it's not Jesus himself, Jesus, when he returns, will bring himself and give himself fully to us and along with him all the other gifts that our hearts long for. You see, verse, grace in verse 13 is the future eschatological grace. That's a fancy theological word for the grace that will come when Jesus returns on that day. Peter is not saying, however, please listen, that as Christians, we ought to then set our hearts on these graces that will be ours in addition to Jesus. No, Peter is very careful to parse what he's saying. Christ is still the ultimate, our goal, our prize. And we must fix our eyes, our hearts on him and him only. But when he comes, he is so kind that he's not just going to say, hey, here I am. No, he brings everything along with him. And he says, here, enjoy it. I don't know about you, but I, for a long time, had a very underdeveloped eschatology, the end times, especially heaven. I used to think that heaven would be a place where I get more and better of what I already have. I have a decent car, Toyota. In heaven, I will get a Lamborghini. I have a decent house that is constantly needing work. In heaven, it's going to be a brand new house designed by Chip and Joanna Gaines. Okay? I have good friendships, but in heaven, boy, it's going to be better. I just think that in heaven, it's going to be more and better of what I already have. But I don't think that's what heaven's going to be like. And my friend and fellow theologian and president, RTS, Scott Redd, helped me to understand this. And he said, you know, in heaven, we're not going to have the middleman. What do you mean? We're not going to have a better and more of the things that we enjoy here on earth. You're not going to have a Lamborghini, a brand new house, and better friends when you get to heaven. You're going to have Jesus. And I said, please, do explain. He said, all of these things, and he's borrowing from C.S. Lewis here, and I agree. You see, all of these things point to the ultimate source of true joy, fulfillment, meaning, purpose, delight, which is Jesus himself. As C.S. Lewis once said in his book, The Weight of Glory, 
all of these things that we take great delight in are arrows that point us to something that we have not yet seen. But it's so near and dear to our hearts. It's what other uh, authors have referred to as echoes of Eden. We've never been to Eden, but we sense it in our hearts. The Bible says God has put eternity in our hearts. And so when we witness what is good, true, and beautiful, we say, yes. I've never been to Eden, but yes. We've never seen the kingdom to come, but yes. And when Jesus returns, all the, uh, the middleman, if you will, will be cut off. And we will see Jesus face to face in whom is our greatest delight. This is heaven and this is what Jesus will bring to us when he returns. But as I said, he is so kind that he brings good gifts along with him. Again, you have to go back to the context of this letter. As I said, Peter is writing to people that have lost everything. They're carrying the burden of sacrifice and even death in the name of Christ. And they're wondering out loud, what will heaven be like? Will our present suffering be worth it? And Peter says, yes. Because of Christ, you will find everything your heart longs for and along with him, everything you could ever imagine. J.R. Tolkien famously said, when Christ returns, he will make every sad thing untrue. Again, just imagine what it must have been for these exiles to hear the words in this letter. It really was a bomb to their hearts. That one day, when Christ returns, every sad thing will be untrue. I believe that. But then... My dear friend, also the president of RTS Washington, Scott Red said, I disagree. And I was like, how dare you? This is Tolkien. This is Lord of the Rings. You don't disagree with people like that. And this is what he said again, and I agree with him. I understand what Tolkien is talking about from his argument that he will wipe away our tears. There will be no more sorrow, no more death. Every sad thing will come untrue. But then he goes on to say, but Jesus will still bear the marks of the cross. In heaven, they don't disappear. You would know him by his scars. What does that mean? It means that our pain, our loss, our suffering, our disappointment that we experience on this side of heaven will not just become untrue, as Tolkien said, but they will be made glorious. Try to wrap your mind around that. The Lord knows your pain. He sees each tear you cry. As we see in the book of Revelation, every prayer we pray gets bottled up, stored. And on that day when he returns, he'll not only just give you rewards and all these good things, but all the pain, the suffering, disappointment that you carried with you will somehow be made glorious to the praise of our King. But how do you know this to be true, Mike? How certain are you that this is going to happen? Well, I am absolutely certain it will. Because biblical hope is not 
the way we use the word or understand the concept of hope is very different from that. If you pay attention to our language, we use the word hope or use the concept of hope as wishful thinking. Oh, I hope Washington commanders will win. Yeah, no, no. Oh, I hope the Wizards will win 50 games. No, it's not going to happen. Oh, I hope it snows. Maybe, okay? It's wishful thinking. And we sort of take that and we try to unpack biblical hope in that way. Like, oh, I hope that will happen. And the Bible says, no, absolutely not. Biblical hope is absolutely certain because it is rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ. Did you know this? When Jesus died, they didn't bury him in a permanent tomb, but they buried him in a borrowed tomb. It's like an Airbnb because he intended on being there just for a little while. And so when he rolled the stone away and walked out of the grave, these promises, the hope that is ours, have, has been secured. It's written on the palm of his hands, and now they're yes and amen, and we can bank on that. And so... When we live with that future hope written on our hearts, it really does change the way we live today. Have you ever experienced how the certainty of that thing promised really affects your mind, your mood, your day, everything? One of my friends, she uh, tells me that she books her vacation way in advance, as early as humanly possible flight, the hotel, the car, all the excursions and whatnot. And I ask her, why do you do that? She says, well, when I know that that vacation is coming, my crazy boss is not so crazy. And my annoying coworker is not that bad. Because as I'm like roiling in that like emotional turmoil, oh yeah, but I have that vacation coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all right, all right, that's fine. And I know this to be true in my own heart, and I know it's the case for you all too. When I see Korean barbecue on Thursday night with good friends, Monday morning is not that bad. Tuesday evening with my kids, tolerable, right? Because that thing promised does affect us. And that's what Peter is trying to get at. Friends, look ahead to the hope that is yours the grace that is coming with Jesus, set your heart on him and all of that. Let that change you. Change who you are. How you think about yourself, your relationships, your career, and so on and so forth. Do not put your home hope on lesser things. You know that these things are not meant to be God and they will be crushed by the weight of expectation. So, how do we then live with this hope written on our hearts? It takes more than good intentions. It actually takes discipline, Peter says. Again, in verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. The Greek idea here is to gird up your loins for action. Now, why would you gird up your loins? Well, back then, men wore long robes, kind of like a long dress. And so if you wanted to run or do anything physical, you had to gird up your loins to tuck it in, to expose your lower legs, sort of like a sumo wrestler, if you will, in order to run and do physical activities or labor. 
is to prepare yourself to do something. Just imagine, like, you know, uh, in a game of football, all the, the linemen, right, the defensive linemen and the offensive linemen, they're waiting, they're prepared for the ball to be hiked to kill each other. That's what's going on. And that's what Peter's getting at. He says, prepare yourself for action. And he doesn't simply say, go out and do things. He says, prepare your mind for action. Why? Because this is where spiritual battle takes place. Remember Genesis chapter 3? What did God really say? Satan is very smart. He doesn't come out with, you know, this, you know, the fires of hell in the background, a pitchfork and what looks like a Halloween costume. No, he, he tests the water, if you will. And he lobs a softball. Did God really say? And if at that moment Adam and Eve said, yeah, God said, God said that, oh, okay, plan B. He lobs a softball. Did God really say, well, you know, he got him. And that's why Peter says, always be active. Fill your mind with truth. Because all it takes is one lie. And before long, if we latch our hope onto that, things can get ugly real, real fast. Apostle Paul says, this, uh, says it this way in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, you need to discipline your mind with the truth. Rehearse that over and over and over again. It's what we call liturgy, liturgical life. Because Sunday worship sometimes is not enough. This is the main event. We get to worship together, pray together, hear the word preached. But boy, we need something come Monday, Tuesday. Heck, we need something come Sunday afternoon. And we need to be in the habit of living into this rhythm, rehearsing this story. And rewriting that promise on our hearts again and again. And we do that by guarding our minds with the truth. That's the first grace that Peter points us to. Second, and the final point is this. The power of present grace. Yes, the future grace is promised to us. We latch onto it by faith. But even here in the now, there is grace for us still. Verse 14, Peter says, we got to do two things. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He highlights the two things that we need to address as God's people with new status, new call, new identity. We got to address this, the passions. And we got to address this, the former ignorance. The old adage, we are what we love, is true. Knowledge and information alone will not get us to the finish line. But what we love, it changes us. How many of you in the name of love has, like, has done something that you regret, right? Oh, I just love it. I just love it. It makes no sense to any of your friends. But you're like, no, but I love it. We follow our passions. And the Bible says that's a problem because apart from Christ, even after being in Christ, we struggle with this thing called sin, which makes our hearts very, very deceptive. Even now, for all of us, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, we struggle with hearts that gravitate toward these idols that promise the things that we love. We're always looking for an easier way out. We're always looking for something in addition to or other than 
Christ himself. And so Peter says, you got to address the passions of the heart. But not only that, you got to address the ignorance. Before Christ, we lived in an upside-down world where we called good evil and evil good. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, 21. For although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. That's why Paul would later go on to say in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how do we reorder our loves and renew our minds? How do we get this in a proper way, the way it should function, so that we live out our call as God's holy people? Do more and try harder? As I said, no, that's not the starting point. There's certainly room for obedience and faithfulness. We must do that, but that is not where we start. So how do we change our heart? How do we renew our minds? Two things real quickly. First, we must live into God's love for us. And Peter says this. He says, look, you are his children. Remember what Jesus said? Peter remembers this because he followed Jesus and he heard Jesus' sermon over and over and over again. Which of you, when your son or your daughter asks for bread, would give him stone? And which of you, when your child asks for fish, will give a snake? Everyone in the audience is like, of course, no one. No one in their right mind would do such a thing. In fact, we would give them the best bread and the best fish, even if I have to take the lesson. Jesus says, if that is the case with you, how much more so our heavenly Father. These words are ringing in Peter's mind as he is addressing his people, as he's writing these very words, your Father, how much more will he do for you, he says. But here's the thing. It's one thing to know of God's love and another to live into God's love. If you only know that you are known and loved by God, great. That will free you. That will deepen your faith in the Lord, perhaps. But it's when you live into it that you are transformed. And how do we live into God's love for us? We live into it through the ordinary means of grace. Remember what Jesus said? Did he say, if you love me, you'll go on the mission field and give your life as a martyr by age 35? No, he never said that. Jesus never said, if you love me, you will tie to everything you have and live as a poor person. No, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Why obedience? Why the word? Why prayer? Why communion? Why worship? Why these ordinary things? Because this is how relationship happens. When a couple getting married face each other on their wedding day and they say, I swear I'll love you no matter what. I know they don't say that, but that's basically what they're saying, they're committing to. It's all the small things they do in the coming days that deepen their love. It is not the attire, the candles, the flowers, the audience. No, it's the small, ordinary time spent over a meal, conversations, praying together, for each other. That's how you learn to love each other. 
So how do you live into God's love that he has for you? No surprise here. Get into the word. Read it over and over again. Write them on your hearts. Live them out. And in your obedience, you see the good, true, and beauty, beautiful of God's word in your life. Whenever I think about this very point, how the love of God changes us, I think about Jean Valjean from Les Mis. I mean, talk about a changed life. As many of you know, Jean Valjean, a former convict, he's now a social outcast. His crime, stealing bread because he was hungry. And he spent years in prison, finally out now. But he wears a scarlet letter. No one would touch him with a 10-foot pole. But he finally experiences kindness and generosity. There I say the love of Christ in a bishop who calls him a brother and invites him in. And some of you know the story. That very night, Jean Valjean does not repay kindness with kindness. He instead seizes the moment to take whatever silver he could get his hands on, and he darts off into the darkness of the night. Surely the next morning, three policemen show up at the door, and they say to the bishop, we have caught him red-handed. These silver that he ran with, they belong to you, don't they? And that's when the bishop responds. So here you are. I am delighted to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest. And you know you can get a lot of money for those things too. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? And it's in that moment you see his heart melt. The years of callousness that were formed because of the harsh conditions in prison removed, melted away, utterly broken and shocked by the scandalous grace and love that was shown to him by this bishop, and his life was never the same again. This man who was so hardened by evil, now an advocate of mercy and justice, living his life in such beautiful ways to care even for the least of these. Only the love of God can change the hearts of sinners so that we willingly bow the knee in worship to our God. So if you want to know how you can actually live out your, your status as God's holy people in practical everyday ways, you got to live into his love for you and let his love shape you. Secondly, real quick. Not only do we need to live into the love that is ours in Christ, but we must now hold on to the faith, or hold on to the promises, hold on by faith, the promises that were spoken over us. Isn't it surprising for some of, you, some of us who are older now, how much resource are spent on securing the things that God promised to us? I don't know about you, there are many nights where I replay that same soundtrack over and over and over again. And if you get beneath, the, the, get to the song beneath the song, it's always like, am I enough? Will, will I be enough? Right? 
Will I have enough? Will I do enough? That's what it boils down to. And we work so hard to accomplish. We work so hard to provide. We work so hard to bring meaning and purpose and so on and so forth. But all of these things, God has promised. Will I be enough? And God says, absolutely, you are in Christ. You are more than enough. Will I do enough? Well, actually, Christ has done everything for you. And in justification, all that is yours. So you have done plenty. Will I have enough? You will. Maybe not on this side of heaven. But when that glorious day comes, and glory is poured into your flesh, and you inherit the kingdom and everything that comes with it, you will have enough. And in the meantime, he says to you, I am for you and I am with you. You see, when we think about this idea that God has spoken promises over us, that somehow life is going to be green pastures and still waters. No, he actually leads us to the valley of the shadow of death too. And praise God, it's just the shadow of death and not death itself. Because Christ went through the valley of death alone. And there he called our name and brought us to him. So even if you think life is hard, the conditions outside of Eden are not ideal. And you find yourself wondering out loud sometimes and questioning the very promise that you read about in the scripture. I want you to know that he is with you. And he is more than enough. He may not change the circumstances of your life, but it will certainly change your heart and give you grace in this present moment so that you can be holy as he is holy. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for not only the call to be holy, for, but for the grace that you give to us. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that in Christ we have more than we could ask or imagine. Yes, when you return, we will have everything. But in the meantime, we have you. Lord, give us faith to believe. Give us faith to enter into your love for us. And give us faith to run the race that's been marked out for us with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter, our final and ultimate reward, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Time, uh, let's rise from our seats so we can praise to our Lord.